Welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization working to protect our ocean. I'm John Sherburn, the show's producer, and this episode features Dr. Samantha Sedlecki of the University of Connecticut's Department of Marine Sciences. She's an accomplished biogeochemical oceanographer who is focused on investigating the coastal ocean and forecasting future scenarios, including the impact of ocean acidification on many species. Dr. Sedlecki also works with coastal communities, particularly fisheries, in order to help them plan and be more resilient. For more information, check out futurefrogman.org and look for us on social media at Future Frogman. Let's get into it. Samantha, welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to have you. I'm I'm really excited uh, to speak with you today and uh, learn at least about some of your incredible projects. Uh, you have an awful lot going on. You are with uh, the University of Connecticut. Yep. And uh, we're going to uh, we're going to learn more about that in a few minutes. Uh, I wanted to comment that we uh, I'm I'm so pleased to meet you through. Uh, a wonderful volunteer we've had on our future frogman team for a couple of years now, Hallie Berger. Uh, I understand you are her advisor. Is that correct? Yes, I I co-advise her with another faculty member at um, UConn. Her name is Catherine Matassa. Hallie is very interested in doing interdisciplinary work, and so the breadth of the work she's doing encompasses things that Catherine's a specialist in as well as myself. So. Um, so we have combined forces, right, to, <laughs> to co-advise Hallie on her projects, yeah. Okay, so um, just to help me understand the way the academic world works. Now, Hallie just earned her master's right. at, uh, at UConn. Were you advising her then, or is this a new, um, uh, new situation where you advise her for her PhD studies? Oh, no, I was, Catherine and I both did the co-advise her for her master's as well. Okay. Okay. Interesting. And, and what, what is involved in being an advisor for a student? Well, I just started at, I started at UConn in 2017. So I've been advising students since then. So I'm not an, uh, not an expert yet, but in my experience since that point, uh, it involves guiding them through um, how to be a, a scientist and, um, and with their goals in mind. You know, so in the case of um, Hallie, when she came to us, she wasn't sure she wanted to do pursue a PhD yet. Um, and so we started with the master's to because she knew she wanted to do that. Right. And then as she was exploring her possibilities with that, she came to the conclusion that she'd like to continue on and, and, and do a PhD. But uh, but, you know, it's that's not always the case. Right. And. Um, and so it kind of depends on where the student wants to go and what they want to do with their graduate degree. Um, and we kind of provide them with opportunities that match up with those goals, right? So it is really an apprenticeship more so than anything else. But, and, and for me, from my perspective, I view it as giving them opportunities to achieve the goals that they've set out for themselves, yeah. And you use the word interdisciplinary, which I, I'm, I gather may not always be the case, but with certain students, uh, they have an interdisciplinary interest. Uh, I, I like, I think that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting because uh, at, at Future Frogmen, we have an interdisciplinary focus. Of course, different, uh, look sort of apples and oranges here comparing to a PhD student, but uh, 
we, we try to involve people of all interests. They don't necessarily have to be studying science. They might be studying public policy or, or, uh, or business or the arts, etc. But in the case of uh, when you say interdisciplinary, what do you mean? Yeah, I, I should probably say transdisciplinary even. What I mean is that my expertise lies, lies more in the like biogeochemistry and physical oceanography um, realm of, of oceanography. And Catherine, you know, Matassa specializes that she's a benthic ecologist and so lies more on the biological spectrum. And um, the tools that we use are different to study the same system. I rely mostly on numerical experiments with models very similar to the ones that we use for weather prediction, only the perspective is in the ocean, right? And then add into that the chemistry of the water um, and the impacts that the biological cycles have on that chemistry. And you get, and the sediments and, you know, kind of how those interact with the water column as well. And you get biogeochemistry, right? That's what it's all kind of combined together. So the combination of the biological impacts and that the sort of climate and physics and chemistry uh, driven changes, those are, that's where, where Hallie's working. For her PhD, she's also adding in, like considering the policy realm of things. So really transdisciplinary, you know, kind of moving across into this landscape. And I think that students are moving more and more that way, especially those that are excited to work with coastal communities with the challenges that they face to continue living on the coast as we move into the future. And um, I find a lot of students that are interested to come work with us are passionate about that. And I think that avenue requires a broad base and a lot of different disciplines in order to um, be successful in that in that sphere. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to dive deeper into your role as a biogeochemical oceanographer and, and uh, talk about that at some length. But before we go there, uh, I'd love to learn more about your background. There, there must have been some things in your life uh, at, as you were a child or, or a young adult that influenced you to go in this direction of uh, studying the ocean. Can you, can you share uh, your story? Yeah, sure. I, I grew up in Chicago, um, so a Midwestern oceanographer. There's actually quite a few of us, <laughs> um, but my family uh, went to Florida often for vacation and uh, as I was growing up, maybe once a year or so, and I was always drawn to the water and uh, from a very young age, you know, wanted to, um, was interested in science and math and wanted to explore more. And then at home in Chicago, I um, went to the aquarium and, you know what I mean, was drawn to those areas of the zoos and stuff like that. So. Um, was always kind of excited about that area of science. And um, in high school, I actually volunteered at the Shedd Aquarium to like be a, um, a tour guide, as it were, you know, someone standing in front of, you know, an exhibit to ex explain students, you know, to kids and to people what was going on there. And I did that for a couple of summers. And through my uh, volunteer experience there was exposed to some of the resources that they had at the aquarium for you know career paths in in marine science and found a school called Eckert College which is 
a small liberal arts school in Florida that had a marine science degree. And so I um, applied and got in and went down there for uh, my undergrad. And I was convinced I was going to be a marine biologist um, and <laughs> uh, specifically study whales, which a lot of people, I think, uh, are passionate about that as they grow up, right? But uh, once I got to school and I started studying that, I found myself drawn more to the geology and the chemistry and the physics than I was to the biology, much to my surprise. And so I ended up doing what they call the concentration, a marine science major with a concentration in marine geology and worked in the labs pretty much right away doing research over the summers. And then, and I also worked with the labs at USF as I um, like became more of a junior or senior as an undergrad still though. So then for graduate school, I just decided that I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school and I knew I wanted to focus more on the carbon cycle. So kind of what the fate of carbon is in the system and how long it stays in different reservoirs. And so I like looked at, looked to work with someone, um, an advisor who specialized in the carbon cycle. And I also knew that I wanted to get more quantitative in my studies. So um, was drawn to modeling. I'd been exposed to it a little bit, but in any case, so I, you know, I ended up going to the University of Chicago to work with David Archer, who is a carbon cycle modeler there for my PhD. And, you know, University of Chicago is great. It's, it's very theoretical. It was a very theoretical uh, focused program at the time, but my advisor was passionate that I <laughs> go and learn that there are, uh, there's not a grid on the surface of the ocean and that I have respect for how people make observations. And so I went on a series of cruises as a student and met people um, on both coasts doing coastal oceanography and ended up then going to University of Washington um, for my postdoc at Juseo, which is a joint Institute, Cooperative Institute between NOAA and the university to uh, do my postdoc fellowship there. And, you know, I went from this theoretical world in graduate school to a very applied and observations focused program at UW. And that's how the forecasting started because move from an idealized simulations to something that's more realistic in the coastal system. And so first we started with, you know, very realistic simulations of historical periods and realized that, you know, as these new tools were coming online, that forecasting was possible. And uh, the people that I was working with there were also very well connected to the stakeholders in the region. And so we were able to realize that potential, you know, talk to them and, and really co-develop some of those early products. So move from the theoretical to very much more, uh, much more applied applications of my research. And so that I stayed there at Joseo, I stayed on as a researcher for um, several years after my postdoc ended. And then only recently in 2017 came out here to UConn uh, to be faculty, mostly because the I wanted the ability to have those mentored relationships and to, um, and to work with students. That was what I was looking to achieve by the, that move. It's hard to do that in the current funding climate when you're we're supporting yourself 100% as well. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, that, it seems somewhat unique and quite interesting that you've, well, now particularly being on the East Coast, but you, you're studying both the waters off the West and the East Coast and, and much of your work. 
uh, which, which is uh, very, very interesting. Yeah, I started that in my dissertation. My, my PhD work was on both coasts. I did an idealized version of the East and the West Coast. And, and so I've been, you know, passionate about both systems for a long time. So. And, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, your dissertation titled The Role of the Bottom Boundary Layer in Biogeochemical Cycles of the Coastal Ocean? That's right. Yeah. 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 And, and by the, the bottom boundary layer, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean a region of the water. So uh, let me let me back up a second because it might be easier to imagine something that you're used to, which is the surface. So the surface of the water, uh, you know, it, when the wind blows, it responds right to to that wind blowing, and that it responds because of the frictional force of the winds dragging that the water below it along with this, you know, and so it doesn't that layer, that surface layer, right, ha is, a, is a particular region of the water column people are interested in as well, right? Similarly, at the bottom, the a region of the water column that interacts with that, with the bottom, like with, when I, I mean like the sediment water interface, like with the bottom, right? That also responds with friction to the winds and to the movements of the water uh, above it and uh, is important for that region of the water column is is important for exchange with the offshore waters and also with the coastal embayments and estuaries and stuff like that. And so it's a, it's also an important area, you know, of study of the waterfall, just not one you see as often. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you don't see as often uh, unless, unless you're a diver. Yeah. Um, but uh, it reminds me a little bit, uh, I digress for a moment, but it reminds me a, a year ago uh, I attended the MIT Water Summit, and it was a two-day conference, and 2019 was focused uh, specifically on plastic in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And I moderated a panel regarding uh, health and ecological impacts of plastic in the ocean. Mm -hmm. I found it uh, rather uh, interesting that some, some of the comments, you know, it was a two-day conference, so a lot of material, but there was a lot a fair fair amount known about the the plastic at the surface and at the in the sediment but in the entire water column it was still quite a mystery uh, it sounded like some good work was uh, underway or being planned but there was a lot yet to learn about uh, plastic in the entire column if I'm not mistaken uh, the, you know we've talked a little bit about some of the work you've done and that that's the study of plastic on the water column is, is a little different than uh, some of the things you're working on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've, you've given us uh, some good information about, um, well, your background, very helpful and uh, interesting. Now, what about what is a biogeochemical oceanographer? What, what does that mean? You've given us a clue to that, but can you go into some more detail? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's someone who studies the cycling of important um, elements or yeah, basically of elements in the ocean system. So, you know, if you can think of carbon, oxygen, nutrients, you know, kind of where they go, like, you know, where they come from, how long they stay in different reservoirs and um, what's their fate. And, you know, it, but it's not solely those and different people, different biogeochemical oceanographers focus on different chemical species, right? And different elements of the system. And, I specialize in uh, mostly these days carbon and oxygen. 
although I have done some work historically on iron as well. Well, it, it seems to me that uh, it was great foresight uh, uh, to be interested in carbon, you know, starting uh, about a decade ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Because yeah. it's uh, certainly top of mind now and extremely relevant. Can you tell, for, for those listeners that might not appreciate the value of the ocean for carbon sequestration and how the coastal ocean is so important, can you give us a, a, a flavor on that? Yeah. So we know that, you know, as we emit fossil fuels, right, that not, they don't all stay in the atmosphere. Um, they get sequestered by different, by both the land and the ocean. Um, and the ocean accounts for about a third of, of those emissions, you know, um, annually. And so we, um, all, we want to know if that, if that sink is the same everywhere, right? And if there's any changes that are going to happen to that sink. Um, not so, not only from the perspective of carbon dioxide sequestration, but also from the perspective of that as the carbon dioxide is absorbed by the ocean, it changes the fundamentally the chemistry of the ocean. And, you know, specifically I'm talking about ocean acidification as one big example of that, where as you add carbon dioxide to the water, you know, the speciation of that carbon as it's absorbed by the ocean causes the pH to decline. And so as you get more carbon dioxide in the ocean, you get a lower pH. And we know that because carbon takes a, it, because carbon has a long memory, so to speak, <laughs> uh, it, you know, like oxygen, for example, exchanges very quickly with the atmosphere. And so if you have a hypoxic event and you have a storm right afterwards, then it will, it'll mix that out, right? Depending on some other factors, but carbon, carbon does not exchange very quickly it, on those, on that kind of a time scale of weather, and so you can have that memory there of what's happened over a longer time interval, and so that translates into different regions having different rates of acidification, despite the fact that acidification is happening everywhere. Right? It's not happening at the same rate everywhere, and so uh, kind of. The, so that brings me to the coastal ocean. This is the region where, as I mentioned earlier, right, the coastal communities are um, mostly are more engaged with the ocean and with activities and marine resources that involve marine resources. And those marine resources are vulnerable to changes like oceans that that ocean acidification would bring. And so it's important to figure out both historically kind of what's happening as well as it, you know, to provide uh, resources so that those communities can understand what was likely to happen, you know, to do um, ocean acidification in those regions, and then extend that to the marine resources that they care about so that we can help inform the choices that communities face kind of going forward surrounding their activities, you know. And when you say marine resources, a lot of what I think you mean and what you deal with uh, relates to uh, fisheries and uh, management of fisheries and 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 you mentioned the communities uh, the impact on the communities the the, the, the fishing industry and and the uh, um, you know even beyond that how it can impact the community if, if the fishing is is hurt or uh, destroyed um, 
what can be done, what can be, uh, a lot of your work is prediction. So how can we prepare? Maybe you could comment on that. Yeah, so I work on prediction on a couple of different timescales. One is, you know, the climate time scale, which is what we're working on on the East Coast right now. And we just have a paper in review on the West Coast on that topic as well. I'm trying to understand how those rates are different from the global, um, the global rates of change, if they are, right? And then understand why they might be different in order to, you know, better understand the system and communicate those results to coastal communities so they can have a long-term perspective on that. So in one case, you could say, you know, well, the, the IPCC reports this, you know, global report on the global rates of, of surface pH change. What does that mean for my waters right here, you know, and the fishing that we're doing locally? In order to answer that question, you need these uh, local tools that we're working on, these regional tools. So that's, that's what we're in the midst of, I guess, right now. <laughs> but with that information, we're hoping that communities will better understand the impacts that they face in response to the choices that we face as society surrounding fossil fuel emissions. So we examine, just like the global simulations do, the different representative concentration pathways to so the different future emission scenarios, which represent a choice that we face as a society, right? So that's one aspect. But then we also work on shorter time scales, like seasonal to like weather forecasts that are 72 hours. And those decisions that match up with those forecasts are different, right? Because they're not about choices we face as society in terms of the fossil fuel emissions or planning, long-term planning, right? They're more about what can we expect from the fishery next year? Like, will it be more stressed than the year before or, or not? And so that's really trying to empower managers with information so that they can sustain the fishery, you know. And at, down at the shortest time scale, it could be the decision of, you know, do I place my, if for an oyster grower, you know, do I place my spat out in the natural system this week or do I wait, you know, a few days in an effort again to try and sustain those fisheries, you know, in the face of these changes that are going on. So yeah, so they each kind of match with different scales of decisions that people, that um, people and communities are facing. Um, in the system. It, it's been very interesting reading about some of your work, uh, a lot to learn, of course, but I like the, uh, the real life application. It's not just uh, theoretical science, but you're really applying it to the real world and uh, the coastal communities. You talked about historical, uh, I, I don't want to go backwards, but I am curious, uh, how have you been able to look at historical information? Yeah, so um, for example, the seasonal forecasts that we put out, we wanted to show first before we started making the forecast that we could simulate historically the seasonal changes that, you know, that the system has experienced in terms of some, we call them ocean health metrics, you know, so basically measures of the system that are relevant to fisheries. And then, and so one example is you know, the onset and timing of hypoxic water. So this is water that is low enough in oxygen to cause stress in, um, in organisms. And, and sometimes the water even becomes anoxic, meaning that it doesn't have any oxygen left in it. And obviously a lot of multicellular organisms need oxygen to survive. And so that has catastrophic implications. So we, this is something that, you know, 
one community like the Dungeness Crab managers on the on the West Coast were interested in because their hypoxia has a tendency to develop on the bottom, um, you know, in the subsurface, and we're in the habitat that overlaps where crabs live, right? And so when the fishers place a pot in the water that and they trap the crab, then the crab may not be able to escape hypoxia if it if it develops around the time that they are trapped in that cage, right? Um, and so kind of understanding where and when, if there were repeated, if there were places where we repeatedly observed hypoxia to develop, like likely places, you know, that seasonally <laughs> that, were, that is expected to develop. And then if we could also forecast those fields, right? But the historical simulations really provide us with a mechanistic understanding of why hypoxia would develop in certain places. And then it also allows us to develop like a trust, you know, engender trust with the stakeholders that we're working with in the ability of the forecast to, to do what we're saying it's going to do, right? That happens because we compare the forecast with observations from the natural environment, you know? And so that historical simulation plus the observations to compare it to is like a really good benchmark for what we can expect. It's our best foot forward from the simulation, you know, what we can expect, uh, like how well we can achieve our goal of forecasting the simulation, right? Yeah, so then, but I mean, it also is interesting scientifically because you can figure out why it looks the way it looks and, and then, you know, also work with people making observations like, oh, this area looks like it might be, um, might perpetually develop hypoxia or this area doesn't. Yeah, and I, I guess uh, my question was kind of uh, uh, odd because, you know, when you talk about history, um, you know, it, we're not, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's not like we're looking at the last 100 years of a particular coastal region, but we might be looking at like the last 10 years. We might have data uh, that that is usable for, you know, recent history. Is that correct? Yeah, I was going to say yeah. 30 years, so more than, you know, you know, for the past, you know, several decades, right, we can look at. I'm not sure that I've seen anyone do a simulation for the past hundred years. Uh, not that it's not possible, but that certainly our data to compare it to is, becomes less and less frequent for certain things, especially, so oxygen, for example, we just started measuring in the ocean in the 50s, right? And the measurement when you first start is not as, not as good as when you, it, you know, li a little bit later on when it really is mastered, right? And so, um, sure. so uh, anyways. Yeah, no, uh, I, I was just throwing that out there as a, as a, uh, a reference point. But uh, one thing that struck me uh, in preparation and, and is striking me right now is, and you even talked about in your education, gravitated more towards some quantification, um, it seems like to excel in what you do, an individual needs to be very strong in mathematics. And, and is there uh, also a need for uh, a strength in like software programming or do you rely yeah. on partners to help achieve the creation of new models? Oh no, we uh, write computer code. Yeah, so we write equations to try and, you know, in our attempt to parameterize the system. So an attempt to we write a series of equations that, you know, we think defines a system, right? Which is this, the 
cycling of oxygen, for example, in the system. And then we, we convert those equations, which are usually differential equations, into computer code. And that computer code, more often than not, is written in Fortran, which is, you know, uh, an old language that most computer science departments now don't actually teach anymore. <laughs> so we, but that's what all the global climate models and et cetera are written in. So how do you learn that, right? And and that is, uh, I didn't have any experience really computer coding in my like grade school, something we did a little bit of stuff and, and I enjoyed it at that time. And then we did a little bit more, you know, in, in college, I chose to take some more because I knew I was thinking in graduate school about going into a field that relied heavily on it for the tool. And so I took a C++ programming class in undergrad, you know, just to make sure that I liked it, you know, before going to grad school. And it was great, you know, I liked it. And so the tools of the trade that you largely learn from your advisor and your peers in grad school and then continue to learn as you like as you move on and progress like through your postdoc and etc you know and even now like i used python a little bit in grad school but now it's becoming more and more common to use and so in science and uh and so we've been as a group learning how to code in in python so you're just like you know you're constantly evolving and learning new things anyway um but yes we use a lot of of math and 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 computer coding in order to achieve the goals. Those, those, that's largely our tool set um, to ask our research questions with in my lab. Okay. Yeah. And, and speaking of your lab, uh, could you speak uh, a little bit about, uh, you're at UConn, which I mentioned, yeah. you're at the Avery Point campus in yep. Connecticut near, near uh, Groton, yep. Connecticut. And uh, I believe the lab is called the Coastal Biogeochemical dynamics laboratory that's right can you, can you tell can you tell us about that sure yeah we um so we have several students and um i'm looking for a postdoc right now and a, and a technician and we mostly we're a virtual space right now right <laughs> everybody is um because we are able to continue our research remotely because it's largely computational we are mostly remote at the at this point in time but well, yeah, we have a series of, UConn has a supercomputer um, that we have access to and and some dedicated, you know, um, access to. And then we also have a bunch of servers to store, you know, the fields um, at UConn's campus, you know, at uh, every point campus um, locally. So, and then, you know, there are supercomputers that are at the national labs that we have access to through the various funded projects. So lots of large scale computing. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the lab is, you know, we're all working on various aspects of, of coastal biogeochemistry. You know, one student is focused on oxygen cycling, another student is focused on ocean acidification, and another student is focused on like multi-stressors and benthic organisms and impacts that these projections have on them, assessing that vulnerability. So different aspects of of the biology chemistry, you know, that they're they're focusing in on. It's great to hear about uh, the great work that UConn's doing. I work with a lot of schools, and it, it's so interesting to see how so many schools are doing such incredible work. And, and uh, you know, with young students are uh, so smart and a lot of energy and doing doing great things, uh, and helped a lot by by people like you that are 
providing advice and guidance. Uh, I did want to mention your, uh, of course, you can find Samantha on the Yukon website. Samantha also has a, her own website, Samantha Sedlecki. It's Samantha, S-A-M-A-N-T-H-A, S-I-E-D-L-E-C-K-I dot wixsite.com, W-I-X site.com. And something you wrote on there helped me a lot, kind of like a subheader. Uh, you said investigating coastal processes, building forecasts, and working with coastal communities. To me, that really boiled it down uh, into layman's terms, which helped me uh, uh, better understand what, what you do. So speaking of that, let's, uh, let's uh, transition over and talk about some specific projects that you have worked on or are working on. Perhaps we could talk about uh, the first one here is uh, regarding Atlantic sea scallops in the Northeast. Can you tell us about that? Sure. That's one of our newer projects. It's um, just getting off the ground. Uh, it's funded by NOAA, um, the Ocean Acidification Program within NOAA specifically. It's a partnership with um, some scientists at NOAA that work with um, one who is a social scientist who works with coastal communities and specifically fishing communities and then an, another who uh, works with scallops and she does experiments with them um, in the lab trying to understand the impacts um, that ocean acidification and other climate stressors have to the physiology of scallops and then we on our side we're bringing in the uh, the numerical aspects right so bringing in the the ocean projections and um and the numerical tools that would help us to extend that uh, assessment of vulnerability into the future um and so we are going to look at a projection out to 2100 um that is regionally specific you know to this area to the shelf off the coast here because sea scouts live fairly on the outer shelf. Our simulation all the way extends all the way to include the Gulf Stream, um, so fairly far offshore, but again focused on that benthic habitat on the shelf where, where sea scallops are known to reside. We have a couple of students working on this project and a couple of postdocs, so it's, um, it's going to be cool. The post, one of the postdocs will be a social scientist working uh, with the NOAA lead scientist uh, for social science named Lisa Colburn. There's another postdoc working with Shannon Masek on, at NOAA um, on this, the scout physiology impacts. And they are doing an energetics model from their observations. What we propose and what we're hoping is we'll be able to project if the scallops themselves might be smaller or larger in response to the combined temperature and acidification changes um, that the future emission scenario uh, would project uh, for the region. And then any distributional shifts that we might encounter because of those changes, you know. And so uh, we are also going to be looking at all the way down to their larvae and like how the, their um, their larvae might end up being affected or the distribution of their larvae may end up being affected. So yeah, there's a lot of pieces going on in that project. But uh, um, and then Lisa and the social scientists are going to take that information and uh, use a series of surveys up and down the coast to assess the impacts that that might have on the coastal communities and, and get their sense of that information, which I think is is critical to, you know, to have that kind of communication going on with communities with when you have these kinds of results. Yeah, we, we did a uh, video 
conversation uh, with a, a panel that we hosted uh, last June for World Oceans Week, and uh, we had uh, a young lady, a student of yours, on the panel, and, and she's studying the scallops, and, and I was fascinated to learn that they're further out on the shelf than I realized. I thought they were much closer to, uh, to the shoreline. Well, there are, there's bay scallops too. Bay scallops are much closer, right? Like with the sea scallops are pretty far out there and they, they live for such a long time that it's actually, that simulating decades, right, is, is in line with, with the changes that would, you know, be imparted on their life cycle, right, that are important to resolve. Yeah, and on your website, uh, I read that uh, the second highest fisheries revenue in the U.S., about $500 million per year. Yes, very important uh, economically. Yeah. Very, very interesting. So uh, that sounds like uh, like great work that, uh, like you said, it's some of it's new, but some of it has been going on as well. Uh, let's talk about another one where, uh, let's see here, this one is quite interesting. Uh, it, it's in South Africa. Ocean dynamics in the southern Benguela, is that the correct pronunciation? Yeah, Benguela. Yeah. Upwelling, upwelling system. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that and, and why why is Yukon involved in that? Yeah, that's funded by the National Science Foundation by NSF and um, Julie Granger is the, um, the lead on that with me at the at Yukon. And she did her sabbatical in South Africa and developed and has relationships with people at the University of Cape Town. And during her sabbatical, she learned that that the lobsters in the area that are local and important economically to the to the region sometimes will walk out of the water because the oxygen gets so low that they are kind of forced out uh, by that low oxygen hypoxic and sometimes even anoxic water. She's also a biogeochemist interested in, in nutrient cycling primarily and uh, so she was intrigued and was able to work with some faculty also at UCT to look at the observationally like what um, was going on in terms of nutrients and oxygen um, cycling in the area. And from the, that work, uh, they determined that like local nutrient retention was exacerbating the, the oxygen decline in the area. And so to work kind of towards more of a process level understanding, we proposed to NSF to develop a regional model with um, uh, another faculty member at UCT who has a a physical oceanographer who has a regional model for the area. And so my student and Annette and I are are putting oxygen into into that simulation uh, in order to try and uh, understand where that hypoxia tends to develop and if we can forecast it at all. And so... And again, driven by that, you know, the communities there that are motivated to, you know, sustain the lobster fishery in the face of of the hypoxia, development of hypoxia in the region. And as we uh, near the end of your available time today, just a couple more questions. uh, And and as we sort of go around the globe, let's take at least a quick look at uh, some of the work you're doing off the uh, Pacific Northwest. One of the studies, the Olympic coast is a sentinel. Perhaps uh, you can comment on that and or a uh, related study. Yeah. Um, so, you know, part of the reason that uh, Julie reached out to me about South Africa and the oxygen cycling there is that we've been doing some work in the upwelling system in the Northern California current up off the coast of Washington and Oregon 
for some time. And I, through the, that work, were able to identify those regions that um, repeatedly experience hypoxia and um, diagnose why with using the models. But then uh, we've now extended those to projections um, on the West Coast and uh, out to 2100. And one of my students, Hallie, worked on taking those uh, projections and then assessing the vulnerability of Dungeness crab to the, those projected changes. And so the region has declared a sentinel site for ocean acidification, um, the northern coast of Washington, the Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary. And so with the sanctuary managers and um, the tribal communities there and the social scientists as well, we've been working on bringing that information about those projected changes into those communities and, and educating them about those expectations. And then also getting from them an understanding about why and what exactly about those species is important to them. The social scientist there, Melissa Poe, is one of the co-leads on the project and she's kind of quantifying impacts differently than just moving beyond the numerical impacts or the economic impacts to more of the cultural impacts of the changes that um, are projected for or uh, a species that's culturally important like Dungeness crab. So, and that project is also co-led by Jan Newton, who is a, who's at University of Washington. So working with the, the tribal communities there has been really uh, eye-opening. They're very uh, interested in these, this kind of information and motivated to sustain the fisheries. Engaged, they're very engaged with the research. So if anyone would like to uh, learn more about uh what Samantha is talking about there with the Dungeness crabs, you can go to our website, uh, futurefrogmen.org, and uh, there's a video there that uh, Miss Hallie Berger uh, presented. Uh, I think you, you might enjoy viewing that. It's very informative and very well done. So, Samantha, I um, want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. Your work is, is amazing and uh, very important. I don't know how you uh, how you juggle it all, but uh, that, that's a testament to uh, your intelligence and your your work ethic. I'm sure. Uh, in closing, I wanted to ask you if you could share your thoughts on the state of the ocean, and as you do forecasting the the future of the ocean, and is there any advice you can provide to our listeners how they can help the ocean as individuals? Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for having me today. It's been great to talk with you. I, um, I think that there are things that we can do um, to help save the oceans. Um, you know, what, what does that mean? I mean, so the oceans are, have been around for a long time and will continue to be, but whether or not they will be able to support the marine resources and the communities that we know and love and visit, you know, like coral reefs and whatnot, really depends on the decisions that we make you know, in the very near future, right? And that bears out no matter what uh, scenario you kind of go down, right? <laughs> so um, so I guess what I want them to know is that they have a choice, you know, um, that it seems like uh, the decisions that we make, even at a local level, don't matter, but they do. Those choices include things like whether or not you, about your transportation, motor transportation, and, and about the you know, energy use in your home, as well as, you know, larger decisions about who we elect to govern. <laughs> and, um, and then even smaller choices about, you know, where you get your food and, you know, like uh, down to even those level of decisions. And so we are not just visiting, you know, we're a part of this world and a part of the ocean community as well. And so 
the more we view ourselves that way, I think the more we uh, can best engage and sustain the environment around us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Blue Earth Podcast. If you want to check out more from us, you can find us at www.futurefrogman.org as well as at Future Frogman on all social media. We release new episodes every Monday, so until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.